Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using passages derived from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm not your host, John Drury. Rather, I'm Todd Bashong, an editor here at Fresh Text. Due to a slight technical error, John's introduction to this week's show was lost to the electronic purgatory that was the fate of mine, and I'm sure so many of your listeners, college turn papers, and hastily constructed works of unread genius. Alas, I will sit in for John in introducing our passages and guests today. Our text this week comes from the 37th book of Genesis, verses 1 through 4, followed by verses 12 through 28. The familiar, but as we'll see, familial complex introduction to the Joseph story. Again, Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, followed by verses 12 through 28. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Shank. Ken currently serves as the Vice President for Planning and Innovation at Houghton College, in addition to being a gifted and insightful scholar of the New Testament and Western philosophy. Ken has the distinguished title of being my first philosophy professor at Indiana Wesleyan University, and I always look forward to his appearances on the show as his mix of scholarship and openness yields such a unique insight into the text. Make sure to subscribe to the show if you aren't already, and feel free to pass the podcast along to colleagues, friends, or congregants you feel might benefit from the conversations that take place here each and every week. Now enjoy this conversation with Ken Shen. Well, you want to jump in? Sure. Cool. Thanks so much. Yeah, we're looking at Genesis 37, verses 1 through 4, and 12 through 28. 1 through 4, and 12 through 28. Would you like to read, and then I'll say a prayer, and then we'll we'll jump into our conversation. NRSV okay? Yeah, any translation you choose works for me. Yeah, just go for it. Okay. Genesis 37. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves or in other versions of many colors. Verse 4, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peaceably to him. I'll jump to verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. And bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing. 
The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, or many colors, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word which was made flesh in Jesus Christ, which was handed on by the Spirit through the prophets and which created all things and which has handed on this story uh, to us today. And we trust that your word may be heard and received afresh even now. And we dare to offer ourselves, uh, Ken and I and all those listening in, we offer ourselves as bearers of the word. May you, by your spirit, uh, equip us by softening our hearts and illuminating our minds to receive, meditate upon, and then hand on the word you have for us today. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So what, uh, what grabs you just in this text? We'll zoom out to the whole Joseph cycle and all of Genesis, if we want, uh, in the second segment. So, just first segment, though, just just this text right before us. What a uh, what grabs you? What a uh, what captures your attention today, Ken? Well, a couple couple things. Of course, there is. Um, although it's not a very fun story for Joseph, I mean it. It's full of family dynamics, you know, that are not unfamiliar to anybody who has uh, multiple children. Um, <laughs> Uh, somebody once said that uh, a parent with only one child is not really a parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, so there, there are the kind of the familiar dynamics. Of course, um, in the back of my mind as I read this story is always, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good uh, mm-hmm. later on in, in Genesis. Uh, there are, are a couple of, uh, shall we say, critical issues uh, I don't mean critical that, I mean, if you're, if you're not a specialist, critical means issues where people make different decisions about what's going on. There are a couple of interesting matters things. of critical inquiry. Right? There you go. <laughs> like whether, whether it should be uh, translated long sleeved or multiple pieces or multiple colors. Uh, that's one. And then the other one is the strange appearance of Midianites Yeah. in verse 28. So those are always interesting to me because I'm, 
kind of a, a geek. Well, let's let's geek out a little bit. Let's start with the the colors versus sleeves versus pieces. Tell us a little bit about that. I actually don't know a lot about that. I, I mean, I I've seen it in I've seen the translational difference, but I haven't spent any time with it. Uh, what's the basic uh, gist behind that debate? Well, I did a then um, again, not a this is like a five minute uh, check. The word the Hebrew word is pasim, which is plural, so the singular would be something like pas. But um, it's just a question of what does this word mean? It doesn't appear very often in the Old Testament. I, as far as I, again, I did, it was a very quick look. Uh, it appears in this Genesis story and then in a story, I think, in Samuel, uh, where it's translated long sleeves. I looked at the Greek uh, Septuagint, where the word is uh, poikilos, which is something like various, um, but it doesn't say various what. Uh, various pieces, <laughs> various pieces, various colors, um, and the so, Septuagint will do that. Sometimes they sometimes they solve a problem by making a decision, um, or there was a different textual variant, and then sometimes they'll just like they'll just say something as vague as possible to kind of leave it open, right? <laughs> and I don't know anything about uh, ancient clothing. I, I wondered whether long sleeve was unusual. Um, and because, it, I mean, this is a complete novel I'm writing here, you know. Yeah, well, that's about all you can do with, with um, this far it, back. Could it be that long sleeve um, robes were unusual and that they required sewing on an extra piece, um, you know, so that so that a long sleeve shirt was a, or long sleeve uh, robe was a, a robe of pieces? I, I'm just guessing. Uh, this is complete novel writing. Yeah, we just simply don't know. I, I wonder at what point, it became, it's interesting to hear that you, thanks for checking the Septuagint. I hadn't done it with this yet. Um, often the Septuagint or the Vulgate, the, the, the most, you know, the most influential Latin translation will often help to identify how a particular reading got locked in the Christian tradition. Since for most of Christian history, the Septuagint was the sort of dominant sort of uh, textual history, even, even Latin speakers who weren't reading it were shaped by all the early Greek fathers who were reading it so that they can't get yeah. away from it, you know? And, and I believe the old Latin was based on the Septuagint, although Jerome himself right. uh, in the, 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 the Vulgate does actually draw directly on the Hebrew texts of his time, which is kind of fascinating. I've been spending a lot because I've been doing more Old Testament stuff. I've actually been doing more Vulgate work than I usually do. Cause usually for the New Testament is just like, well, this is just junk. I'm not going to look at it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but with the OT, it's sometimes you get, you get an insight into a variant, you know, cause the text that would have been in front of Jerome that he was putting into Latin and we have extant multiple extant translations of by Jerome's own hand. So even he changed his mind on how to translate certain words, you know, right. I think there's three wow. editions of the Psalms. So, so you can actually get some insight into what might've been there. Um, the range of meaning, uh, if there's a, uh, I don't know, now I'm geeking, sorry, but it sounds like at least the Septuagint didn't make the decision. No, I don't um, think so. And again, I haven't checked the Latin, but I do wonder, I'm actually, I'm going to check it right now. Cause that's too good to, you know what I mean? Because if he would have made it colored, that would have helped explain why it's just been locked since then in the Western, right? In, in some of my own, uh, and again, I'm uh, geeking out in my own way. Please do. Um, 
in I'm so I'm my Hebrews is supposed to be my bread and butter. Um, so I've I've been reading through a book, a monograph on Hebrews for a piece I'm writing. And um, the book is arguing that what what we call the Septuagint, this lovely blue edition that, you know, we all have. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't. Um, oh, I do. I do. I got it right here. <laughs> actually, actually represents a kind of coalescing of of a very diverse uh, set of Greek translations. Okay. Um, the book is arguing that a lot of times New Testament scholars have said, and again, I'm not 100% on board with this, but but uh, the, the argument is that a lot of New Testament scholars have said, oh, the New Testament authors are changing the text because they feel free, they're, they're, message, they're the message version people, and they're just altering the text according to their theology. But what this book is arguing that actually there was a lot more diversity among uh, versions of the Old Testament in Greek than, than we maybe realize, to where a lot of these variations that the New Testament authors have on wording may simply be them following a different Greek text. Yeah, I think that that seems extremely likely, you know? I mean, especially given that even in our own time, when people quote the scriptures in English translation, it's not that they're they're uh, feel unhinged from the text, the original text, but they might quote from memory, and it might sure. be a amalgamation of two different translations, right? Especially you get where because sure. of where you and I are from, we get a lot of this KJV NIV sure. kind of mix thing, right? Where you'll have there'll yeah. be like one little thee or thou in there, but you know the whole thing's not King James, yeah. Uh, but there's a little King James in there, and then and then usually a lot of NIV. Um, and, but then sometimes like the message or the NLT have, have influenced and people will use a word Well, just quoting would, from memory. You just kind of draw on all of them, you know, and, yeah, and these I would, would have been writers who would have been much more deep in it. Just like you and I tend to translate on our, you know, in the moment on the fly from a text that we have, uh, yeah. in Greek in mind, I don't have Hebrew in mind. You do, but, well, not, um, not, I love the, what you're doing on Facebook, but anyway, um, with Hebrew. But um, uh, you could argue, I would argue that the King James itself is probably a conflation uh, or reflects a conflation of of various Greek manuscripts um, of the of the New Testament. But anyway, okay, I'm really we're really getting done. I love it. No, it's great to geek out because, I mean, for for a lot of our listeners who may have never even heard of this translational problem in 37, just the sheer fact that you were reading from the NRSV, which chooses the 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 alternate right i mean that would have been jarring i think for some listeners while we were chatting i checked it's it's uh i i I see i didn't can't memorize it i'm gonna stick it in the tent it's a tunicum polymitum so it's it's color in the in the vulgate um is poly is polymitum uh color poly's many and mitum is is color many colored yeah yeah so i think uh that decision is pretty consequential because then, right. that, then that kind of locks it in. Um, so a lot of a lot of times, I think you would agree with me, uh, and and because it's our, we don't think it's tradition. We think it's the Bible, um, and so we get really upset when someone says it. I've you know, uh, it's many colors. I, I went to Sunday school. It was many colors. Yeah. Why know? are they changing and, my Bible? <laughs> and these these become really people get angry about these things. 
Um, but ironically, we, they are tradition. Yeah. Even though they'd be say your traditions are changing the Bible, it's like actually the traditions shape the translation. Yep. yep. Now I will say, just to make a little after to follow up that rant with a counter rant, the NRSV does have a preference for the funky. Uh, I mean, the NRSV sometimes it's like, oh, you're. You love making the thing that's the footnote in all the other translations, the main <laughs> one, right? Yeah, <laughs> like almost to great... kind of stick it, stick it to the man thing. And, and in many cases, it's the right call. I, I really love the NRSV, but there's a little bit of a kind of preference for that, that, that the I think. Common, common English Bible, I felt like uh, yes. did that a lot. Almost which, to hey, make it stick out, which I think is valuable. Uh, I want to be able valuable. to quote something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's really good. We spent a long time on it, but I'm glad we did because th- th- this kind of textual history stuff is not is 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 helpful to just kind of be aware of that it's in the mix. I did have one quick observation. So that was the thing. We, we might come back to Midianites. We'll see. One thing that really stuck out like a sore thumb to me was this phrase of someone found him out in the field wandering around. Yeah. It's really what weird. What was that about? Yeah. Yeah. I don't ever remember that detail in the story as a child being pointed out. Where are my brothers? It, it does give us a glimpse into the culture, you know, where we have cell phones uh, and GPS and, and um, you know, the, the nature of shepherding. Uh, is that what they're doing? They're shepherding, yeah, aren't they? Yep. You know, that, that they could end up wandering, you know, how do you, how do you find your brothers? Quite far. It's just funny. It's the image of him wandering around and then later they call him this dreamer. I don't know if it's on purpose in the author's style, but I do feel since, since I mean, we know at least, the narrator knows and the narrator knows that we know that this is going to be a big story, a long story. So like in, like in any novel or movie, the opening scenes are, are, are character building as much as anything. And so the picture of Joseph, there's a kind of innocence and even a kind of a wistfulness. Is that the right word? That that image of him kind of wandering around in a field evokes for me. Now, I don't know if that's me reading in my own culture into that, but yeah, I don't know. I thought of, I thought of, uh, uh, again, I hadn't noticed that either. You know, I assume I noticed it, you know, however long ago I plowed through Genesis, but um, the irony of it. What if he hadn't have found them and had gone back home? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, that was what struck me. Yes. Yeah, so this was not – that even adds a, that adds a twist to the chapter 45, what you meant for evil, right? It kind of – it highlights not the inevitability, but the almost kind of sheer contingency of this moment and that it's precisely in that contingency that God is working something out. At least that's Joseph's interpretation. Yeah, and although I'm an Arminian, I don't have I don't have problems with God uh, dictating some things. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole Bible falls apart if you can't have some <laughs> directiveness. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, and I suppose what being an Arminian means is that uh, God's directing can work with even our own contingent free choices. And it is interesting, by the way, and I'm sorry, a little, another slight tangent. No, um, please. That my, um, so I was thinking uh, of this a, a while back. My grandfather, of course, was was a Pilgrim Holiness 
Arminian, um, certainly would have disagreed with predestination in the Calvinist way, but very much believed in God directing our lives and God mm-hmm. uh, uh, having a plan for our lives and things like that. There's a kind of, of interesting tension between a, a tendency to, oh, the Lord let me go through that because he wanted to teach me something, but my ultimate salvation is a matter of my own grace response, you know. Yeah, and I have a lot of Presbyterians who have the kind of basically the opposite combination, right? <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, our final destiny is totally predetermined, but like I run my own life, right? Like, like, like it's, it's really funny. Like you, it's not a given that those are precisely correlated the way that us overthinkers imagine because we're obsessed with yeah. uh, conceptual coherence, which is just not what drives most people. Most people, they hear other people say things and like, ooh, that's cool. And they use it. It doesn't occur yeah. to them. Ooh, all of our ways of talking should like perfectly line up. That's actually for weirdos like us, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a quick break and come back and do a little more interpreting. All right. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and he uh, and I are looking at Genesis chapter 37. Uh, the specific verses are uh, what, 1 through 4 and 12 through 28, but you know, just really looking at the, the basic events of this opening chapter. Now, we can go wherever we want in this uh, middle section, Ken, but I thought I'd just mention for reference that this summer we've been going through the Old Testament lesson in the lectionary, and um, our regular listeners would know this, but any new listeners wouldn't. And we've been, it's kind of, you know, every couple chapters kind of dipping into some key texts to kind of string together a bit of a narrative here in Genesis. There's only two selections from the Joseph cycle, this one, and then chapter 45 next week with my wife, Amanda. So I mentioned that to say that, again, we can go wherever we want, but I mean, we're pretty much free to roam throughout the whole (laughs) Joseph story uh, to make any point we want to we want to explore today in terms of reading this in context. So in terms of the, you already raised a historical context question that I'd be keen on exploring if you want these Midianites and, or any literary context as we, we work or work through the whole Joseph cycle freely. So I just wanted to make you not feel like, Oh, I don't want to step on somebody's toes. Someone next week's going to do Jude and Tamar. I was like, Nope, <laughs> we jump all the way to the end of the story. So uh, <laughs> you can go wherever you want to go. So. Do you want to talk about those Midianites or do you want to go somewhere different? Well, I mean, it's one of those uh, geeking out things again. And uh, let me just say that having having been to seminary and having been to uh, through a doctoral program, I my my mind immediately goes to the sources behind Genesis when I read that, Mm -hmm. which is not probably where hardly anybody else listening to this would go. Um, Well, if where their minds would take them, they would have already gone there. So the, the, the podcast is to take them places they might not go. So have at it, Ken. <laughs> but, of, but of course, I think probably, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything unusual if I were to say that the, I think the majority of Old Testament uh, scholars would, would see Genesis as, as the, the putting together of more than one source. Again, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on that, but when I see, uh, is it Ishmaelites or is it Midianites? So mm-hmm. they were going to sell them to the So you, you get the impression that they're going to sell them to the Ishmaelites. But then in verse 28, you get the impression that the Midianites found Joseph in the pit and they sold them to the Ishmaelites. A little tension mm-hmm. 
tension. But, and, and then there's the question, are Ishmaelites Midianites? There's actually a um, interpolation, uh, if it is an interpolation, that is a, something inserted into a later text. I'm trying to remember where, maybe it's in Samuel, where where somebody has, has made the same equation between Ishmaelites okay. and Midianites. Um, but any, anyway, so when I, when I see that slight fissure uh, in the text, my mind immediately goes to, you know, the idea of multiple, multiple sources. And frankly, the wandering around of Joseph, my mind uh. wonders about that too, whether we have kind of two different accounts that have been uh, integrated. I'm not arguing for that. I'm just saying that's the thought that goes through my head after how oh. many years, how many years of, of doctoral work. It's very easy to imagine a story of him maybe falling into a pit. Wandering around and he falls into a pit. Yes, and, and gets drawn out. Because you're right. I never saw, I always saw the Midianite Ishmaelite thing was always confused as a reader. As a kid, I, I remember the Midianites falling out. It was always just Ishmaelites in my memory. But uh, verse 28, the antecedent of the plural pronoun, which actually there isn't even one. It's just, it's just a, a plural verb. In 28, then Midianite traders passed by, you know, Va, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. The they of who drew them could be the Midianites, not necessarily the brothers, correct? Um, they would both be plural, right? 28? Well, I mean, I would, I, I would read Midianite men as the, as the subject myself, but... Yeah, that would be the default. You would need... You would need a reason to go otherwise. Um, I think so. But then it's them who are selling to the Ishmaelites, whereas the plan in 27 was let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Although interesting, let not our hand be upon him, which of course is a euphemism, but it also could be literal, kind of like we won't even bring him out of the pit. Yeah. We'll tell the Midianites he's over there. I mean, kinda, can... I'm sort of, I, I always like how like, if I love the source crit thing, and then I like doing the next, the sort of redaction game where it's like, okay, you might have different sources here. And then when they come together, they may end up creating a kind of narrative that was not really fits the logic of either source, <laughs> but kind of creates its own new little story, you know? <laughs> Which is kind of what happens when people harmonize the gospels, you know, yeah. or our Christmas play, you know, where we have wise men and shepherds in the same, you know, scene. Yeah. Yeah, and and it'd be like if those were what was canonized rather than the older, <laughs> the four Gospels. So, so when Ishmael, who we've heard of before, goes off into the desert, kind of south and, and east, I believe, of Beersheba, that would be roughly about where Midian is. So at least from a kind of locale sense, you could see how Israelites would have this kind of association. No? Yeah. So again, I'm not, I'm not. Geographically uh, it works. The conflation yeah. is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there, that, uh, that these are two different sources. I, I'm just, that's the first thing that pops into my mind sure. after years of brainwashing. <laughs> well, it's more just saying that, even after the sources come together, then the kind of conflation is not, it's not totally random. It's not like mixing up Hittites and Ishmaelites or something sure. right, where they're totally sure. different side of the country. Yeah. And of course the boundaries between peoples, especially shepherding and, and Bedouin peoples are a lot more complicated. You're 
Yeah, I mean, your we, narrow we tribe them. is a lot more important, actually, than these larger national identities that we tend to associate ourselves with in a in a more modern, more global, yeah. and more more mobile society. Right. Where they're not fixed boundaries. Yeah, and you, so, you probably had interpenetration of peoples. But it is it is a strange little moment. It is a strange little moment. So I had one more weird thing. Can I ask you about it, or did you have something you wanted to point no, out? No, no. So. Yeah. And and this might even be moving us in a an interpretation, an interpretive and even homiletical direction. I, there was one other thing that really struck me today. Just today, as you were reading, when it said, "I always try to slow down, especially when someone's reading and I'm hearing." You can kind of almost notice the beats in a story that your eyes would just pass right over because it's only a few words. But in verse twenty-five. They throw him into the pit. There's no water in it. And they sat down to eat. <laughs> my, my eyes really grabbed that. They sat down to eat. The, just this image of them having just thrown their own brother into a pit and then sitting down for a meal. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal is exactly, exactly it. And later when we see that when Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in it, he tore his clothes. Of course, that that makes more sense if there's two different sources here because of uh, was he not with them at the meal during this conversation? Like Reuben misses this moment. So at least in the final form, canonical form of the text, we have to say um, somehow Reuben was not a part of this conversation. Right. Yeah. That's what's required by the narrative. So – it's interesting that it's older. I mean, there are several family. I mean, we haven't really gotten into family dynamics in the ancient world, you know, and and some things that aren't don't seem that ancient. But it's interesting that it's the older brothers that both are wiser. Uh, isn't isn't Judah is Judah the third or the second? Let's see, it's third. It's actually it? the fourth, right? Okay, isn't it Judah? Le- Simeon, Levi's the third, isn't he? Levi, Judah. So he's the youngest of the first four, right. which as a kind of unit are the oldest. Yeah. Right. In a, in a family of 12, you, you have, you have, yeah. uh, you have blocks and he's yeah. the, so he's almost, he has some of the, he has some, he's got a, he's almost like a youngest oldest, right? He's kind yeah. of the, he may have been the favorite for a little while as the right. young, you know, he may have been special in the family system. But the older, the, some of the older brothers are the ones who realize this is a bad idea to, to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Both Reuben and Judah are engaging in, this kind of negotiation. Yeah. It's, you can tell it's like when you seek someone is, I mean, I've seen it even in myself where I'm, I'm sensing my, like I've come down too hard on my kids. Right. And I sense a little compassion rising and I don't want to listen to it because I want to be in charge, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, but it comes in enough to kind of like negotiate a lighter, you know, because for us, you know, um, and just for their own sake, they know they can't just, you know, they just directly contradict the brothers. Uh, but, uh, and then throughout the whole Joseph cycle, we see both Reuben and Judah sort of attempting to sacrifice themselves and their family honor for Joseph's sake and for Benjamin's sake and for their father. So both of them are kind of struggling to act on maybe some moments of either compassion or prudence the way you put it was, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea, right? That's kind of a prudence. And 
I don't know what's, we don't know what's going on in their heads. We only know what they, what they yeah. say, but in large families, I think these older children often are surrogate parents or second, yeah. second parents. Um, because uh, like, for example, my oldest sister is 18 years older than wow. I am. Oh, she I didn't could, know that. She could actually be my mother, you know, not, so not, she could functionally, she could issue commands almost. I mean, she, at key moments when the parents are gone, she's the, of course, that's not her style. Gotcha. But, but well, neither um, was it Ruben's, right? Ruben kind of tries to, right? <laughs> but um, it is interesting that you know that Ruben and Judah almost feel to me like a, a second parent um, in in the story a little bit. But anyway, no, I, I absolutely see that, and I think that's something we're, I think, in many ways meant to see because you know these are represent these are symbolic representatives of the 12 tribes, you know, so they're the different tribes are going to want to see themselves in these. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, there's the original meaning. And then there's all the things that we want to see in it, in our own life. But then the fun thing is to recognize that the actual reception history of the text would have been people doing exactly what we're doing, just seeing ourselves in the story. (laughs) And that can be a little bit of a, and that would have even shaped the development of the text even. A little bit, you know, especially yeah. if there's multiple sources, right? So, yeah. I mean, even earlier on, it was he, he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah when he brought back the bad report. So he didn't tell on everybody, which would not have included Reuben and Judah. Reuben right. and Judah were not – they right. had not experienced the brunt of Joseph's uh, tattletale behavior. And Joseph probably didn't experience it as being a tattletale because it sounds like these functioned as four sets of brothers, Whoever, whichever mother you had, you were kind of a crew. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Joseph doesn't strike me as having a lot of EQ. <laughs> no, that's what fit the wandering scene. Like kind of like these stories. walking around in the. <laughs> Why don't you stop and ask somebody? Why did he have? <laughs> what nobody, no one should come to you and say, "Who are you looking for?" You should walk up and say, "I'm looking for some shepherds." Have you seen? <laughs> this is a this is a great story, I suppose for. Uh, for children who don't have EQ to read, <laughs> huh. remember, remember telling your parents that you're smarter than them probably isn't a good idea. You know. Yeah, he has this kind of guileless. Um, it, it's a kind of. It's funny. He he has some of the. I, I don't know. You tell me if this is overreading, but at least in its final form, you've got Adam and Eve on the front, and then Joseph here at the end. And I'm not saying he's perfect um, at all. Um, of course, they weren't perfect either. They were innocent. Um, and and you see a little of that innocence in him. And, and maybe there's a little even inclusio. You kind of see a little bit of one aspect of the image of God sort of peeking through. You see others in, in, in other characters, right? But he's a very um, – I mean, he comes as he gets older to become very, you know – um, very wise and 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 wise isn't even just the right word. Also, kind of sagacious and clever and political and yeah. But even then, there's a kind of there's a little bit of a authenticity that 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 comes through. You know, he just gets overcome with emotion and tells him what he's you know finally tells that he can't hold his secret in any longer, as it were. You know, and if he was a real you know if he was a real sagacious politician, he could he could take his he could take his lies to the grave. Right. <laughs> um, but he, he can't, he can't handle it. He can't play the schemer forever. Um, he's, there's a, there's a certain kind of innocence about him 
which like I'm saying, when you say lack of EQ is the dark side of that. I don't, when I use the word innocence as a kind of more neutral word, I don't mean to say yeah. good or perfect. I, you've heard me say, I don't like thinking of Adam and Eve actually as perfect. They're innocent, but there's, they're not complete and mature, you know? I mean, uh, he is a, he is a kind of case study in the school of hard knocks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, he, he obtains knowledge uh, yeah. as we go through this, but it, you know, the, uh, you know, I'm the youngest son. My wife thinks that I was probably spoiled. I deny it, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, there is a certain kind of innocence to, to somebody who is in that, that spot of the younger, you know, Bob Whitesell, who used to teach at the seminary he's retired now, but um, uh, he once said that everything made sense about, about me once he realized that I was the youngest boy and only boy um, yeah. of five children. But I mean, so Joseph has a certain, I mean, he's in that privileged spot. He has, he has last son privilege. Yeah. So, and he, it's weird. He's and and for them, because of these units, it matters because of course he's not the absolute youngest. There is one. Oh, that's more. true. Benjamin. Yeah. But that makes these, these little units within the family very relevant because there's only two that come from, from Rachel. So, and he's interestingly the oldest of those, but, but Benjamin, because he's the son of tragedy, um, cause his, cause Rachel dies in childbirth. I think that complicates, yeah. that would complicate. I mean, I, I, I've heard this, that, that fathers, of course, dying in childbirth used to happen a lot more, but even, but, uh, but that fathers, it's really hard to not resent, uh, a child who, for for whom their mother died in childbirth, it's really it's hard to get over that. They, they become associated with that loss. Yeah. There's a trauma there that helps. Even again, I don't want to over psychologize, but again, the readers of this, the first thousand years of readers of this text, would have psychologized it. Yeah. <laughs> the people who made the who called this scripture <laughs> would have psychologized and seen themselves in it, not in the way that we do, of course, right. uh, in the individualistic sense, but actually. Family dynamics is is actually a key way that modern people can break out of individualistic psychology and think of it as a relational psychology, which actually brings us closer to the ancient world to think how do we relate and you know and you, you get the sense Jacob, who had been this brilliant schemer throughout the whole the whole story of 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 the generations of Isaac, the previous unit now we're in this unit from thirty seven to fifty the generations of Jacob, and Jacob is this pretty a lot more passive, a lot more sad character, you know, both the loss of his favorite beloved wife at the birth of Benjamin, and then he loses Joseph. So it's kind of, he gets this, it, there's a lot of tragedy from his point of view. It's just full of tragedy. Although it's all the sons is like, am I not worth 10 sons? Literally there's 10 of us left. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Again, we don't want, I don't want to, I mean, the danger is for, for me to use modern psychology uh, and in kind of, shove it into an ancient text. But uh, the conditions under which these groups of sons uh, grew up are different. Um, yes. So the, the older the son, the more they grew up under Jacob the schemer. Um, and Jacob the schemer still in competing with Laban. I mean, the, you know, Joseph didn't spend much time up in uh, Padanarum, whereas that's like home to these older boys. They, they would have memories from those days. Yeah. And they so might have even helped dad with his little sheep trick, you know, like to get the, <laughs> to get the sheep at the spots, you know, here you carry it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
but but just I the mean, spread, the, the math works out that they would have been there, and they were all most of them were born before they left. The contrast between Jacob the schemer and Joseph the naive is yeah, yeah, and in some ways it's it's invited. I mean, Jacob has a dream uh, too. His father was a dreamer too, and that's not irrelevant. It, was he favorite and then became a dreamer, or was he a dreamer and that's why he's favorite? You don't. It doesn't. It's the the, the text doesn't clearly indicate the cause of his of his election. It's just there. In but, a sense, uh, Jacob Jacob is the the victim of scheming uh, in this yes, story. Yes, yes, very much so. And but Jacob has a has a dream, but he's already a young man on his way north to get married and and even his dream with god it's like right afterwards he makes vows and and makes some it's a very sort of adult response uh good or bad right there's some scheming too like god i expect you to uh to to if 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 you take care of me i will i will follow you whereas joseph has this again this kind of almost you get the vibe of his youthfulness whatever his age um and the family the, the family tree is not irrelevant. I mean, 12, 12 sons, 11 out of 12 sons, you're always going to feel young, even if you're 25, you know, you're going to have a kind of, because everyone else is kind of ordering you around, taking care of you. You just, I mean, you're youngest of five. You said I'm youngest of only a pair, uh, but we're both youngest, which I did. I don't know if I knew that. <laughs> and he had lots of scissors. I didn't know. I don't know if I registered that. They, I think Bob's right. It does help me make sense of you. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that this dream kind of comes and he has this kind of almost uh yeah like you said low EQ somewhat innocent slash clueless kind of hey everybody I had this had this cool dream you know doesn't think to kind of keep it to himself or you know yeah um, you don't have to say everything you know as my mother used to say God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Right? That's, that's another one I heard. <laughs> and look, now we talk for a living. <laughs> hey, mom, look at me. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Genesis 37, verses 1 through 4, and verses 12 through 28. Let's explore some uh, sermon starters. If you were preaching on this text, maybe you got called up at the last minute and the text was already set, and hey, we just want you to preach on, on Genesis 37 and pretty much talk about Joseph all you want. We're not doing a series on Joseph or anything. Where might you... Where might you get started, even if you don't have a full, you know, full sermon idea uh, cooked yet? Like what would be a kind of, how do you make the transition from text to sermon is, is a way to start this conversation, Ken? Right. Well, um, I think uh, my, I mean, my first thought, and of course I, you know, hopefully would have a little more time to think about it, but I think I would, my first inclination is to, to just walk through the story and to um, dialogue with with the congregation from where they're coming from, and kind of make make the the jump between that time and our time. Um, so, for example, and again, you can critique me on this if you want, but 
my perfect ideal of a parent doesn't show favoritism among the children. Um, this is part of what gets um, uh, Joseph in trouble, I think, is the fact of the jealousy of his brothers. My, my dad used to call all of my sisters his favorite daughter. Um, I had a special status in that I was the only son, so he could actually say I was the favorite son without um, stepping on any um, of their toes. And I could do the same with my son since I only have one son. But um, somebody might say, well, that's cultural. That's your Western culture saying that all children um, should be considered favorites. But um, I would caution against showing favoritism mm-hmm. to one of your children over uh, over the others. Is that Christian? I think it's. I think it fits fits the gospel. Um, in Christ, there is neither male nor female, neither older nor younger sibling. Again, I don't know what you think about that, but that was the one of the first places my um, that if I were to preach through the narrative, um, you know, kind of going through the story and then stopping at points that I thought might be helpful to uh, to a congregation. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I'd say in response is that. Uh your instinct that the that at least in this case the form of the sermon would correspond to the form of the text is i think a good instinct i i actually like i i try to let that be my default setting i kind of say i got to opt out of that i got to have a reason to to teach uh give a more deductive sermon on a narrative right so um one one of the ways to generate variety in your preaching is to um, engage the variety of the genres in the library that is Holy Scriptures, and then to let those, the genre itself shape the sermon a little bit. So I just would like to say that, I mean, turning this into, even if you have some points or whatever, but I mean, the, the notion of just telling the story, adding in some cultural context of the time to make sense of things, uh, pausing at parts of the story that we might not notice and just fill them out a little bit, write the novel in your head as it were. And, and, and it's always healthy to na- name where you're just speculating, you know, or you and you can do it just by saying things like, could it be, or perhaps I remember when yeah. I was in college writing papers in your classes and getting my dad to sometimes look at him and give me feedback. And one of the things he got me, got me on was probably because of the influence of Glenn Martin, but uh, was like, you're just a little, it's good that you're clear, but you're a little forceful. <laughs> Try, could it be, or perhaps, like put those at the beginnings of your sentences occasionally, John, and be a little less, you know, confident uh, in what you in what you write. And I think there's a place for that when you're just kind of guessing. But sometimes you have to guess and add a little detail around a scene, some color commentary, as it were, just to give people space to digest the beats of the story. And there's no way to have color commentary that doesn't that doesn't have a, at least a, if awkward fusion of the horizon of their world and ours, you just can't get around it, which then comes to the issue that you raise of the favoritism question, where I am of two minds on this question. On the one hand, I think the narrative clearly reiterates again and again, that God is a disruptor of favoritism in general and of primogeniture in particular, the the kind of election of an oldest but God's way of, this is the other mind of me, God's way of disrupting that is not a kind of generic equality, but a kind of countervailing election, right? It's, it's, right. it's Jacob, by- Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I <laughs> yes. Hated? 
Now we can say that ultimately that's expressing the heart of God, that God loves all equally, but that's just kind of not the way the, even the New Testament says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, there is a movement of election. There's a quote, maybe I've quote, I've surely quoted on this podcast before because I love it. Um, it's a line, the the opening line of uh, Karl Barth's uh, chapter on the love of God. And he says, in German, it's great because it's just one verb at the end that holds together the whole sentence, right? But it goes, so it doesn't repeat the verb, but I have to in English for it to work. Um, God is the one who loves um, his son, Jesus Christ, and in his son, all his children, which is referring to Israel and the church, right? Uh, for Bart and, and in his children, all humanity and in humanity, all his creatures. Isn't that great? And, and again, the way that loves comes at the end of that sentence is really cool. It's just in this, in this, in this, in this loves, right? <laughs> in German. But anyway, why did I bring that up is to say that th- this is how God's love of all is played out through this kind of electing and it's electing the weaker against the stronger, the younger against the older, but ultimately to bring blessing on all nations, right? The small, the, 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 the irrelevant little Israel to judge and ultimately bless all the other Gentiles, right? So, so I want to affirm that kind of side while at the same time, when it comes to what that looks like, then ethically for us, it does entail a, instead of just a generic kind of, I love all my kids the same, because sometimes we can engage in denial. Because I think, I think what this text invites us to is not just make sure you never favor them, but actually pay attention that I may favor some of my children, or maybe I favor each of my children in different ways, right? Because I mean, I'm with my kids. There are certain activities I want to be with this one. There's certain activity, you know what I mean? And And we want to make sure we're not denying that. Like notice when I'm favoring and ask myself, how is God working against this? And how can I let go of this favoritism? So I'm with you, but I, I want to, so you, you invite, you said, you maybe you disagree. So I thought I'd go ahead and disagree. I took yeah. the bait. And- no, I mean, I don't, I don't, ha- I don't have that all worked out. Um, so how can it be neither Jew nor Greek and yet to the Jew first and also yeah, the Greek? Right. I don't, how do you, how do you work that out? How do you work out first, first Corinthians 12 that seems to say one person has one gift, another person has another gift. Hey, we all have mm-hmm. gifts. And then chapter 14, but you should seek to prophesy over speaking in tongues, you know, so seek the greater gift. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which so is it, dude? <laughs> I don't know how to. And of course I don't want to do what complementarians do and say, Oh Yes. A uh, husband and wife are equal, but the husband has more authority, you know, because they're the equal, but in no way that matters. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, it's kind of segregation, you know, separate, but equal. Yeah. But, but, um, so I don't have all that, all that worked out. Definitely. I believe I should love, love all my children the same, but I mean, I, I, I like what you, you, you said about having favorite, favorite spots within that love. Yeah. And I mean, inheritance, the culture thing of inheritance here is really important because the love is not just about feeling here. There, there's a sense in which Jacob is signaling, probably when it says that he loved him more, sure. that, that he's signaling that he's going to be the inheritor. He's going to be the potter familius when I'm gone, right? I mean, I think that's what, and, and he's therefore generating competition among them, which is why him as oldest of Rachel is in some sense, he's, he's a youngest in one sense, but in another sense, he's the oldest of the elected wife, right. which was sure. Rachel. So I, I think and there were, there are laws in Deuteronomy against that. 
Ah, right. It has to be the actual oldest, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, I mean, as much as I hate primogenitor, it was invent, it, it was culturally invented to oh. stop from happening what happens in this story. Yeah. It's in order to avoid conflict. There's a default. I mean, we had this during the, you know, during the, during the, the shutdown that, that we're still in as we're in some ways, not as intensely as it was, but when we're recording this, um, the, I mean, just the little things where if we just have a schedule, a default setting of who, who does and who does the, this chore then, and who's, who can have the iPad at that time, we just yeah. had less conflict. We had less conflict because it, we know what the default is, you know, and yeah, primogeniture, especially in shepherding communities, which can tend to be very tribal, very violent as a culture. Um, when dad dies, they all fight and kill yeah. a lot of people and lose a lot of sheep in the process. Why not just have it be, you know, the firstborn, yeah. firstborn gets the bulk bulk of the sheep. You guys can take off with some, some you can stay as long as you submit to him. It is, it is a cleaner system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's a good, that's a good insight. And that's the part that's hard, harder, I think for us to, to recognize because sort of, we have a more individualistic and egalitarian sense of how things like inheritance work. I mean, we, we do it with a will, you know, to where it's all yep. hopefully set out clearly so that, but, it, but even then, I mean, um, I've not, thankfully not really experienced this, but I mean, when, a, when a, a parent dies, a lot of time there's a, a looting almost that takes yep. place of the, of the, the house, you know, children sneaking in to take things mm-hmm. that they want. I mean, bad stuff happens. And possessions, nine tenths of the law, you know, once you have things before the will's read. Oh man. Yeah, no, I, I can't. I mean, if I were to give advice to someone preaching on this text, I would say, I'd say spend some time doing some of your own little family history. If you've never done a, there's a term for it. I forget the memeogram. No, that's not the word. There's a, there's a word for a kind of uh, just doing a little, just do a little your own family history and pay attention to some of the triangulation that took place in your family and some of the fate and recognize the favoritism. We often think somebody else is the favorite but others might've seen us as the favorite and pay attention to that. And, and then look for some, and then just look for a juicy story. There's no way to not weave in some of your own life story and into when you talk about this. And I wonder if the repentance moment could be the asking about, you know, inviting, depending who you're speaking with, you're speaking to a, to a room that's, that's mostly parents. You know, if, if it's at a church where you have teens and kids typically not in the room, then I think the invitation would be to ask, you know, really look into your heart and have I, have I shown favor onto one? I I might say one, I might say not, but have I really, and, and am I in a way setting them up for great pain and suffering precisely by when I favor them in a way, I'm almost, I'm almost cursing them because of the, the pain that, that will come and then also being able to offer the hope, but nevertheless, God can work through that anyway, you know, and thankfully you're not the only father <laughs> that this person right. has. Um, now, if you had a more mixed setting or you had some children, then you could start asking about resentment because I think it's clearly resentment built up in these brothers Yeah, that led to, because they, they probably felt pretty just when they did this. And you see a little picture of, of ancient shepherd life of just the, the willingness to just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the ancient world was brutal. I mean, this yes. is what I tell. This is what I tell my uh, when I'm teaching the Old Testament to students. You know, you have to remember when you read some of these laws in the 
Pentateuch, you know, and and the destruction of Jericho, you have to realize how absolutely brutal the ancient Near East was. Yeah, yeah no, I think that's so true. And 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 interestingly enough, it depends on the kind of cultural history that the the people that you as a preacher or your congregation would have, but you have the brutality of the ancient Near East, and then as a kind of point of contact for us in the modern West, you can think about especially like Scottish Highland culture and how that was imported in many ways, even into the, into uh, Appalachia and like the Hatfield and McCoys, like the, you can have, there are signs of the, these, these family feuds that, 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 that emerge even in the, and especially in, and those were, and they were shepherds, the Highlanders in Scotland, right? The, the bagpipes were to call sheep, you know, so that shepherding has a kind of, has a kind of uh, uh, honor system and, and and quickness to violence that's not as the case with agricultural societies who will engage in mass state state violence, but not interpersonal violence as much because you just have clear it's boundaries. You know, you just have clear. Yeah. Here's my field, here's your field. Whereas cheap, you can literally just all of a sudden three are gone, and someone no, these are mine. What you know, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> there's there's a lot more, and there's not clarity about land and and who's who owns what. It, it's much more complicated and much more just quick to violence. And I don't know if that's yeah, and I think but depending where you are in America, you may have that in your own family history or in your local history that you can tap into to sort of make this not seem. It's still strange, but it's making the strange a little more recognizable. And this scene, you called it brutal. They sat down to eat. I wonder if I didn't do a full-blown narrative, like it'd still be narratival, but if I didn't kind of walk through all the beats, I could totally see developing a sermon just around this moment where you just sure. fill that scene out. They sit down and then you kind of, you, you back shadow back, right? To what had happened up to that moment. And you have the different characters. You could even do, uh, you could write if you're kind of a more creative writer style, even if this isn't what your sermon would look like, it'd be a way to prep for your sermon is you could almost write a dialogue. Every single one of the brothers kind of their take on what we just did and what we're about to do. And, and, and cause it kind of helps you see the, the layers of resentment, the layers of um, competition, how they all feel about their dad, the attempts of the older ones to lead the younger ones. I think that yeah, and, and, fun. <laughs> and this might this might be a stretch. You should but, write a novel on that. Right? <laughs> um, you know what? Who's in a pit near me that I'm just eating? Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, you, and again, this this I hope hope people don't find this offensive, but I mean, this is this That's is good. kind kind of what um, kind of what we mean when we talk about white privilege. Yeah. You know, it, we may not have thrown anybody in a pit or or knelt on somebody's neck until they suffocated. You know, but we may be having a nice meal and not really giving much thought to it. So, I mean, there, there's, there's another, another dim- way a person might, might go with this, you know, and, and because the fact maybe, is, not all the, yep, maybe not all the brothers threw him in. Well, it's clear that two of them had qualms about this, Joe, Judah and Reuben. And physically it doesn't take um, all of them to do this. And some may have been silent, but disapproving it's a car um, silent and improving. That's right. That's what you could really explore by just uh, staying in that moment there at verse 25 for a while. Um, no, I think that's a, I think that's a really good connection to our own time who, and that's the question who is in a pit, you know, maybe I don't think I put them there, 
Maybe I literally did not. Maybe I was even against it, but now I'm just sitting down to eat and it's somebody else's problem yep. is how I see it. Wow. That's the soften our hearts, Lord. Whew. Wow. That's really good, Ken. Thanks for that. Well, it's been an hour. Thanks so much for your time, Ken. Appreciate it a ton. Appreciate Always fun. thoughts and, and everything. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their uh, production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to our listeners, as always. We appreciate it so much. Feel free to share this and get the word out. And we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Great to be with you. Bye. 